The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I'm reading for you from God's Word, very familiar place, the Gospel of John, the opening of that great Gospel, words that you've heard many times before, but I ask you to hear them again, maybe even try to think that you're hearing them for the first time. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is God's wonderful word. Well, the past several weeks, I've said we're looking at mostly r- rather familiar texts with a common subject being Jesus Christ. I have mapped out 12 weeks in which I would look at texts into early February under the title, In Christ Alone. Here is a text that adds now to what we've already seen in Colossians we dealt with what Paul would have called the cosmic Christ. Christ as the co-creator with God. And by the way, that's reaffirmed in this passage twice. Nothing was made except that he was involved in its being made. And then we went to Psalm 2 and saw another, you might say, cosmic level text that talks about God making his son the king installing him on a throne before there was anyone in history called Jesus. Then last week I took sort of a departure, you might say, when we talked about texts from Hebrews and Galatians that speak about the timeliness of Christ's coming and how all of human culture, education, politics, all kinds of things are affected by the coming of Christ. And if he had never come, our world would be very different. 
Well, today I read words that I know are familiar to all of you. The hard thing is trying to receive them with freshness. But here in John 1.14 in particular, I'm not dealing with the whole passage, really mostly with 1.14. This great verse, which is short and familiar, but it's long and deep in its powerful statement. We have an ancient document that comes from a Roman citizen, a man named Junius the Younger. He kept a kind of diary, and whole portions of it survived. Junius lived about 200 A.D., about 200 years after Christ. So John's gospel had already been written about a century by then and was in some form of circulation. And Junius wrote in his journal that he kept as a Roman citizen, a man not a Christian at, the, at first here, although apparently he became one. He wrote about encountering John's gospel and reading chapter 1. This is his written comment, a Roman man encountering this for the first time. He said, I instantly was struck with the divinity of the argument and the majesty and authority of the whole idea of the Word become flesh. My mind and my body shuddered. I was both amazed and agitated by this concept that is so unlike anything I had ever heard before. It seemed absurd to me, and yet at the deepest level of my being, I knew it must be true. I wonder if you can possibly read John 1, 1 to 14 with that kind of startled, amazed, trembling reaction at the great things that are being charted and put in writing here. Let me read just verse 14. I read it, as you know, probably in the English Standard Version that we use here as a standard modern translation. But for many, many years, we used the New International Version until it was corrupted in its text that is now published today. But in the 1984 or earlier NIV, it reads this way very helpfully, I think. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We always wonder what that word only begotten means. It's really hard to say what it means because it's so much unique that to use the term the one and only, I think, captures something that we know we cannot express. It is that unique. Well, please consider, first of all, today that two opposite worlds are being united in the person of Jesus Christ in this text. One world is designated by a special term, the Word. That seems mysterious. Why would a man be called the Word unless he bore in his own being and character and all things about him some kind of special message? And this was Christ in his divine preexistent glory, the message from God that was with God and was God, and yet he was a separate person because he was also distinct from God the Father. One who came to represent the supernatural world in the natural world. 
the invisible God become visible. There's a great text in 1 Timothy 3.16 that says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. I like that as a compliment to this text here, both by John. Or, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy, of course, is from Paul. But the same word saying, the best we can tell you is it's a mystery. If you want us to go to the nub of it, to somehow get down to the core and explain to you what this means, we can't. We just can say, great is the mystery of the one and only, the only begotten. There was nobody like him. There's nobody we can compare him to. But we see in him a message from God that is an eternal message from the divine being, the Word, and we see in him flesh, a beating heart, susceptibility to illness and tiredness and pain and disappointment. Jesus had teeth. He had legs. He had fingers. He was a man in every sense of the word, and yet he was God's transcendent, eternal message from all eternity. Two things that don't seem to go together united in one person. Man, because he got hungry, he was tempted. He could have caught a cold. He could have had many problems that you and I have, but God, in that he could work miracles. He could speak for his Father. He said, if you've heard what I have to say, you've heard the Father, because all I speak is what the Father speaks. How are we to think about a being who is both supernatural and natural in one person? It's, it's not a case of, you know, Jesus kind of had a cloak of divinity. Remember, some of you who are older will remember that. I don't think we have many restaurants that do this anymore today, but you would go to a restaurant, maybe you were wearing your outer coat in the winter, and you had ladies had a fine dress on, and men had a tuxedo on, and you went to the coat check, and you handed over your coats and got a little tab to pick them up, and so you took off the finery that you wore outside, and then you had other finery. And you maybe think, well, this is Jesus coming into the world, and he took off divinity so that he could just be a man. No, that doesn't work. That's not an accurate illustration at all. He remained God in becoming man. And you couldn't somehow say, oh, that molecule was God, but that molecule was man. That's not the way it worked. It was a mysterious interrelation that no other person had ever had. I have puzzled over and tried to study the words only begotten, which is given to Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Does it just mean he was the firstborn or he was God's only son? Well, it, yes to both, but, but neither of those completely captures the term. It's a bigger term. I think that's why I love the NIV's designation of one and only, one of a kind. There was no one like him. He was God and man, both. You couldn't take him apart and say, here's the God part and here's the, the man part. I love the informal New Testament translation where one writer said, this isn't your greatest study Bible terminology, but he said of this, the term uh, God was incarnate in flesh, or that his translation was God moved into the neighborhood. I like that. God pitched his tent 
is an accurate way to say it. In our camp, in fact, he did that a long time ago in the book of Exodus. You might remember God designed a tabernacle where he said, there will be this symbolic dwelling where I will be in the midst. And when you look at the tabernacle made of skins as, my, as I design it, as I give Moses a design, it wasn't very big. 45 by 15, you could have fit three or four tabernacles in this room we're in. But that temporary dwelling, certainly the transcendent God did not come and contain himself completely there. But he said, wherever that is, you will see that I've pitched my tent in your midst. I dwell in your midst. In that sense, Jesus was God pitching his tent in our midst. In the early Christian centuries, when they were trying to sort out who and what is Jesus, that's what all the church councils were about for the first 300 years, practically. And there were folks that became called docetists, D-O-C-E, docetists, who claimed, well, yes, they said Jesus was God, no doubt about that. They weren't heretics in that sense, but they said he was God who only appeared or seemed to be human. He was like an apparition or a phantom. If you had poked your finger at his arm, your finger would have gone right through, they said. Well, that doesn't seem to wash with a certain skeptical disciple who had to put his hands in his wounds and his side, does it? The Docetists were absolutely wrong. In fact, John, in his first epistle, 1 John 4, 2, said about that heresy, he said, every spirit that says Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is in the flesh from God is the spirit of Antichrist. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't an apparition. He was man and God together in an absolutely unique way. Two opposite worlds were merged in him. No wonder we call him the one and only. There was never another like him. He had no precedent, and there's none after him that's like him either. Both natures remain distinct and whole, In Jesus, the word was not laid down and the flesh was not laid down. Only when he died and then rose again was his flesh changed. The God-man, the theologian calls him today. That's not a biblical word, but it's a common term for stressing the two natures in one. His manhood was like ours. He had to resist sin. And he resisted it with all intensity, the greater intensity of a truly pure mind and an unsullied heart and soul had to fight harder against sin. You, you tend to say, oh, well, he was God, so it wasn't hard for him to resist sin. Don't think of it that way. I think that's absolutely wrong. He had to fight harder than you do. He had to fight harder to resist sin. 500 years after Christ, Augustine, another great theologian, Augustine wrote around 500 AD. Here's a saying from him. He said, man's maker became man, so the ruler of the stars might nurse at a mother's breast, so that the bread of life might know hunger, so that he who is the way, capital W, might grow tired on his daily journey, 
so that the one who is universal truth, capital T, might be accused by false witnesses, and so that the source of all life might be able to die. That was Augustine. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Christ. Mysteriously, wonderfully, we have the incomparable union of two opposing worlds combined. Secondly, though, I want you to see in verse 14 the statement, we have seen his glory. Glory is always a slippery term. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. How did Jesus show God's grace and God's truth? Well, grace we think of as something given that was not deserved by the one who receives it. A giver makes a recipient his debtor, you might say, by bestowing something that did not have to be given, but was given graciously and wonderfully. When Jesus came forth from the halls of eternity and was born in a cow stall in what was probably a cave, we say a barn, but we think it was a cave in Bethlehem, there was no logical necessity for him to do that. People weren't waiting saying, oh, I know God, the transcendent God, the the word from all eternity is going to come and become a man. Nobody was expecting it because it was the utterly unexpected thing. It was not owed to mankind. It was startling. It was strange. And and people like friend Junius there, who I quoted, were startled and amazed. Angels were amazed. I love a book I have at home called Things Into Which Angels Long to Look. The sense in which angels beheld the birth of Christ must have been wonderment. What is he doing? Why would he do that? They're not worthy of it. He doesn't owe that to them. But Jesus did it out of grace. Grace. Think of someone who is the CEO, the high executive of a large international company. I'll just pick Ford Motor Company, not for any particular reason. I don't know who the CEO of Ford Motor Company is, but but let's imagine to the great headquarters of Ford in Detroit some weekend, the CEO showed up early on Saturday morning and talked to the security people who guard the building and said, look, send all the custodians home. I've decided that it should be my place to go through our, our large, expansive headquarters, and it'll probably take me all weekend. I'm going to clean every bathroom in the headquarters of the Ford Motor Company. The security people would be astonished. Well, sir, Mr. President, Mr. CEO, that's not your job. Why would you do that? And he would say, and by the way, I don't want you to tell there are others in the company who cleaned the bathrooms this weekend. That's an act of astonishing human grace. But put that alongside Jesus and think how much greater it is. What he did in grace. But he also did it according to truth. And many who hear these words in John 1.14 say, well, it seems like to say how truth relates here 
is that it was according to actual verifiable uh, evidence that he did this. Think about that for a minute. You know, Jesus came and he left in his wake all kinds of people who could say, well, yes, I met him. Well, yes, I was a shepherd who went there and saw this. Yeah, I was one of those magi who came and saw and worshiped. And then go on down the line. You know, I was Joseph of Nazareth, a common carpenter, and all I was doing was going to pay my taxes. What a routine thing. But that got into the story. Why? Because it rooted the story in the stuff of history. It was verifiable. It was nitty-gritty. You could come and know later on exactly when it happened and where it happened and who was involved. And so look at the odd cast of characters that got involved. Herod the Great. The guy was almost a maniac. Go, go to Israel, go to Palestine and see the fortresses that he built. He was so paranoid that somebody was going to attack him. He had huge fortresses built all over the place so that he could retreat to some place and defend himself when, when people came against him. Caiaphas, the one who with cunning plotted the execution of Jesus. Pontius Pilate, who reluctantly you know, even got a message from his wife. All those little details, what are they about? They're to anchor this coming into flesh in truth, in verifiable history. And so the incarnation of Christ and the unfolding of his life and death and resurrection are not any kind of a religious mythology or set of legends. Many of us love the writings of C.S. Lewis who came at things with a whole different way of seeing from other theologians. And Lewis actually taught at the universities in England mythology and the status of legends, uh, the legends of strange places like Iceland fascinated him. The Norse mythology fascinated him. This was a man who once said, look, I know mythology like few people alive. And the life and death and drama of Jesus of Nazareth are not mythology unless you will admit they are the myth that's true. The one myth that's true. It really happened. It was in history. If Fox News or NBC or the New York Times had been there, they would have been able to report it when the Word became flesh. Well, all this seems to tell us that there was a goal. God had some purpose in mind as he brought his one and only into the world. And it wasn't just to put on a grand display. If, it was, if the purpose was to put on a display, what we would have had would have been three years worth of the, you know, the glorification, the transcendence of Christ when he appeared with Moses and Elijah and the three disciples saw him with whitened clothes and bright lights and all that. That was a show. Wow. But God said, no, I'm not just coming to put on a flashy show. I'm coming to bring my son into the nitty-gritty earth and blood of history. And he's coming to do something because he's got an appointment with a cross. His flesh had an appointment with a cross. You know how wonderful the flesh of a baby is? You know, you bring a baby, and even an old fogey like me likes to, you know, just, wow, their skin is so great. 
Everybody loves to touch a baby. They're so innocent. They seem so pure. Well, Jesus didn't come into the world just so people could say, oh, look at how handsome he is. Oh, wow, what a figure of a man he is. No, he was given flesh so that his flesh could be wounded with a spear and with iron nails. He was given a body as a vehicle to die in so that he could die a real death and be raised again to life. Another great scholar whose name begins with an A is Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm lived later than Augustine. He lived in the approximately 1000 to 1100 AD. Anselm wrote one of the leading books in all of early church history. Probably if somebody could declare these are the leading three or four human books written about Christianity in the first thousand years, Anselm's book with a Latin title, Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man, would be on the list. Anselm was asking, why did God become man? It seems like such an absurd thing. Why would God do that? And Anselm said, only someone who was equally God and man could come and do this particular assignment because it would not be right for the justice of God or the holiness of God if God just simply in an administrative fiat, executive action, said, okay, you're all sinners, but you're all forgiven. I just am going to close my eyes to sin and say, that's all right. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. You're forgiven because I say so. Many people say, why didn't God just do that? He was God. He could do anything he wanted to. Well, he wouldn't be God, you see, because he would have violated his justice and completely transgressed his own holiness. God had to be involved in the formula of forgiveness, but man had to be involved too. And so you had one who was God and man involved. Payment had to be made, and you could combine in Jesus Christ the penalty and the payment for a particular fulfillment in a representative man who was God. Anselm said the incarnation of Christ, here's a quote from him, was not only necessary and possible, but it was most fitting and most inexpressibly beautiful. What a design, in other words, that God became man, a masterpiece. Well, I ask you in conclusion today, do you profess this thing to be true? In your heart and mind and conscience, did the eternal word of the living God become flesh? We know, many of us, by our faith, that he was the one qualified Savior to whom we must cling in trust throughout our lives. But do you know it? Is it true for you? Or is it something maybe you said, well, back in Sunday school days, I prayed the little prayer and said, Jesus, be my Lord. I don't know whether I still believe that or not. Is it possible somehow that John chapter 1 could astonish you again the way it astonished Junius long ago who heard it for the first time and said, that's totally amazing. I've never heard such an incredible thing. That should be the constant reaction of a Christian. Say, look what God has done. 
in Jesus Christ. Did the Word really become flesh? Because if He did, our own mortal bodies have got new dignity that they didn't have before. He came in a body like mine. I hope a whole lot better than mine, but He came in a body that was weak and that could be depressed, that could be injured, sick. But if I have a body like that, He has changed the whole equation. He's saying those made like unto myself in my image are people who should not be out there defiling their bodies in a riotous sins of the present evil age, crazed with alcohol and drugs and violence and sex of every kind. They should respect their bodies in a new way because I took on a body like theirs. And His Holy Spirit now dwells in the body of Christians who belong to Him by faith. He's given us a new life, not just a promise that one day we'll be in heaven. That's a great promise, but one day Christ is in us right now, living in us. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And one day, these bodies of ours are going to go to be made in a glorious way like his for eternity. Theologians commonly believe You might say this is a speculative belief because it isn't exactly said this way in the New Testament, but it's implied that Jesus took his humanity back to heaven with him, having acquired it, having lived in it, having died in it, having risen in it. We believe that when we see Christ in heaven, we'll see wounded hands and wounded feet and a wounded side. I think that is a legitimate belief based on the New Testament. Because Jesus truly was and is the God-man, the one and only. Folks, it changes everything. Everything. Because He is the God-man. Our Father, help us. We are so quick to forget the wonder, the amazement, this thing into which angels were awed when they saw what your son was doing. They came and the the poorest shepherds on the earth who were the garbage men of their society saw angels who they could not have imagined if it wasn't a real sight, singing glory to God in the highest. And we sit here unmoved and just say, oh yes, I guess that's Christmas, isn't it? Father, keep us in perpetual wonder, in daily worship, in awed amazement to bow before this Lord and God who came to save us. Thank you so much for Jesus, God in flesh. Amen.